It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. 2020 will likely be remembered for many things, but one thing has been missing that hasn't gotten quite as much attention. It's the year without a summer blockbuster, at least so far. With the pandemic closing down movie theaters, the distribution of new films slowed to a trickle and then stopped. Some were pushed to later dates, others have been released direct to streaming services. Theaters have slowly started reopening with reduced capacity in films from the archive. The major studios still aren't releasing many movies to theaters, and many of the most anticipated titles have been pushed to 2021. So why not take the opportunity to revisit blockbusters of the past? Here to talk about putting together your own summer film festival is former AJC editor and freelance writer Suzanne Van Atten. Welcome! Thank you! So, um, you put together this story about... uh, uh, putting together your own little film festival at home, and and I'm wondering what was your criteria for picking these particular films. So I had two things in mind when I was picking these films. And by the way, it's you know really hard to just pick five films, right? Well, I challenge. So I really did think long and hard about it. But I wanted to do two things. I wanted to look at past blockbusters because we do so associate the blockbuster film with summer. And, you know, the fact that we aren't really having that so far this year, um, I wanted to revisit past blockbusters. But I also wanted to slip in some cult classics, um, you know, that you might see at an indie film festival and, you know, just to give it a little variety. Um, And I I was also looking for movies that had um, a summer theme to it for the most part. Um, so there was some aspect of summer or the beach or, you know, et cetera, to the movie. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I wondered, looking at your list, it's like, because you mentioned the cult classics and things like that. And it's like, that makes sense because, you know, not everyone loves the big blockbusters. And right. so, 
you know, it's the theaters themselves would do some counter programming uh, anyway. You know, you would you would often find like these little art house films uh, playing alongside some of the big summer blockbusters. We uh, we have a whole list here, and um, so let's just start start there at the beginning. Um, The the your first choice is was a really big summer blockbuster. Yeah, in fact, some people say it's the original summer blockbuster. Um, According to the Guinness Book of World Records, it's the first movie that made uh, more than a hundred million dollars at the box office. I can remember when this movie came out in 1975. I mean, it was just a cultural um, phenomenon. People lined up around the corner to see the movie. It was um, just everybody was talking about it. It it was just a really huge cultural event. Um, And um, it also really ruined swimming in the ocean for a generation of people. I can remember going to the beach not long after I saw it in the theater and just like, oh, I was very nervous about being out there. And I wasn't the only one. And for those who haven't figured out what we're talking about, we're talking about Jaws. Well, see, that's the thing. I recently resaw it. I guess it was last year, the 4th of July. My son actually watches it every 4th of July. And so he took me to see it at a, at a, a, big, a big screen last summer. And I had not seen it since it first came out. I don't think I'd ever seen it again. And I, it was amazing how well it stood up and how, even though I knew everything that was going to happen, how horrifying it was. And to see all the little Spielberg, you know, um, things that you associate with him in a film there. And uh, yeah, it's just a great, great movie all the way around. Um and it really is a quintessential summer blockbuster film. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, it's it's like so many summer blockbusters. It's like they don't get a whole lot of respect. But, but people do tend to, you know, Jaws, I guess, does tend to get a little more respect. It's just, it's, it's quality filmmaking. It really is. It really is. It's not just Flash, which, you know, a lot of times we do associate summer blockbusters with just all um, style, no substance. But no, this movie, it, it's it's so entertaining, so well done. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, um, since we, we have all the time in the world on our hands <laughs> much of the time now, it's like, I wonder, you know, you may want to uh, do some double features here. And I was wondering if there was something that, that might work as a double feature with Jaws. Yeah, I think a great double feature with Jaws is Bong Joon-ho's The Host. He was the director um, of Parasite, you know, that swept the Oscars earlier this year. But he was this film from 2006 called The Host, which is an amazing monster movie. Um, It's about this um, incredible monster who lives in the sewers of a South Korean town. And it's just, I mean, it's CGI, but it's just beautifully done. And one of the things that he does that's interesting is he introduces the monster pretty early on and you get a good look at it and as you know you know creature features tend to you know keep the close-up looks at monsters pretty um uh at a distance so um and the other thing this movie does is in, in in addition to just being thrilling but also hilarious um, is it incorporates those same themes you see in so many of his films, which is classism and um, disregard for the environment and the impact of that. 
Um, so I think it would be a great double feature with Jaws. Yeah. Well, that sounds fascinating because, yeah, I, I have not investigated further any of his, his other films. And, and I'm sure a lot of people probably haven't. Oh, you should. He has an incredible wor- body of work. Um, Mother is another really good movie of his. That's- oh, that's right. Now, I, I have I know of Mother. I haven't seen it. But yeah, I know of it. Yeah. Yeah, but the host—I uh, just love the host. That was my first introduction to him, and I, I saw that one in the theater as well. And it's just thrilling, and it's got a lot of the same actors too. Let's move on to uh, your next uh, choice here. Uh, yeah. um, so I included *Coming to America* um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I hadn't seen it in a long time, so I watched it again, of course. And this is the um, movie with um, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, where um, Eddie Murphy is this African prince, and he comes to New York to find his queen. <laughs> and um, and so they appropriately come to Queens. <laughs> and, um, keeping in mind, this is, you know, 80s era New York City, which, um, you know, pre Giuliani clean up and all of that stuff. So it was a pretty gritty place. And uh, it's just a hilarious, you know, it's really a buddy movie with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. But it's just so, so funny. And, um, and it made $350 million at the box office. So it was uh, quite a blockbuster. Uh, in 1988. Um, so, and some of the best scenes take place in um, what's called the Mighty Sharp Barbershop, <laughs> where Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall are in disguise as an elderly barber and patron. Oh, it's just hilarious. Hilarious. And you know, we're working on a sequel. It's some, what, some 32 years later um a sequel is in the works i think it's of course been delayed but um but yeah coming to numeral to america is supposed to come out later this year yeah so what about um a good double feature with coming to america what what would work with that well i think the perfect double feature would be trading places which was um also directed by john landis and also stars Eddie Murphy. This time he's paired with Dan Aykroyd. Um, and it's also a very funny movie. And interestingly, um, there's a little, uh, a, a big part of this uh, Trading Places is um, are two characters, Donna Michi and Ralph Bellamy, who are old time, <laughs> you know, movie stars. Um, they play these powerful money brokers who um, get their comeuppance in trading places. And they actually make a cameo in, with the same characters in Coming to America. They're homeless <laughs> in Coming to America. So it's sort of a cute little tie-in to uh, trading places. And they have a similar, because they're both John Landis and both Eddie Murphy, you know, they, there's a very similar sensibility. I mean, it's like if you love one, you're going to love the other. So... <laughs> So, so we've had a little bit of horror, a little bit of uh, uh, comedy, and now, and now on to something that's very summery. Yeah, but first I'd like to talk about, um, I'd like to sort of skip to Harold and Maude, which is obviously not uh, a summer blockbuster. In fact, I think I read somewhere it took like 20 years for it to ever make its money back, but it was certainly a 
an instant cult classic. Um, and it continues to gain. I mean, originally critics kind of panned it, but it has over the years become pretty beloved by critics. But this is a film by Hal Ashby, who was, you know, just a significant filmmaker of the era. Um, and it's a, a dark, very dark, subversive comedy about a wealthy young man obsessed with death who falls in love with this quirky woman in her 80s. And she, um, interestingly, this, now this movie's from 1971. So it's very much of that era. And um, the older woman, who's played by the incredible Ruth Gordon, um, she sort of embodies the youth movement of that era. She's a political activist. She's a DIY artist. She has a very live for today approach to life. And um, the boy, Bud Court, um, is attracted to that. And um, it was just such a quirky, unique um, movie at the time. And then, of course, it had this amazing soundtrack with Cat Stevens. Uh, so it's just been, um, HBO Max has it right now. And I watched it recently and was amazed at how well it stood up. I was really expecting it to seem very, very dated, but, um, particularly something so steeped in the zeitgeist of the time, but it, I thought it stood up. I, I, it's just an amazing movie, a brilliant, unique, beautiful film. Um, so yeah, love that. Yeah, I, I have I haven't seen it in ages, and and but but I recall I didn't see it until you know probably the very late seventies I would imagine, um, mm-hmm. but I immediately fell in love with it. It it was yeah. just it it is. There's nothing else quite like it, um, and and you know it's it's the whole um, you know the suicides. Of, of Bud Court's character. Yeah, he fakes suicides for entertainment or shock value to freak his mother out. Yeah, like I said, very dark. <laughs> it's also a beautiful film to look at. Like the cinematography is very gorgeous. Um, it's definitely worth rewatching. Um, so I can remember seeing it. I was 13 years old. I saw it in the movie theater. And it was, you know, back when you were a kid and back in that era when, you know, you weren't inundated with news about movies you just went to see a movie you had no idea what it was going to be and i went in i walked into that movie blind as a 13 year old and i walked out kind of a different person (laughs) (laughs) so my double feature for this one is actually one of the movies from my list um which sounds like a weird pairing but stella got her groove back (laughs) from 1998 is also about a May-December relationship in which the woman is older. Um, so there are some parallels there. Uh, um, and Stella got her, how Stella got her groove back, of course, is based on the Terry McMillan novel. Um, and uh, it's, um, you know, it's not a movie that's going to, it follows the tropes you expect from a romantic comedy Um, but that's, you know, sort of part of the pleasure of it, you know, is, um, you kind of know what to expect, but the ride is so fun because, um, it's a beautiful film to look at. It's filmed in Jamaica and, you know, how how much more summery can you get, you know, beach scenes. And then you've got this amazing cast 
um, who are also uh, many of them beautiful to look at. <laughs> um, from uh, Angela Bassett, who is just incredible and luminous in every scene, and a very young Tay Diggs. Um, and it's really, I think, a, one of Whoopi's Goldberg's best roles. And, um, and then we also have Regina King in there. So, um, yeah, who plays a, a friend of, um, yeah. And uh, so it's just a fun movie, beautiful to look at. Again, you know, about that May-December relationship with the, an older woman. Awesome. All right. Well, well, we've got one more to go. Yeah, that was my last movie, which is, again, very... I wanted to include a documentary, and this is barely a documentary. <laughs> but um, The Endless Summer uh, is... Um, is uh, from 1966 is a film about surfing and it's the quintessential surf movie that all surf movies are compared to. And you'd be surprised at how many of those there are people, you know, who don't know there are tons of surf movies. Oh, it's a whole big genre. It really is. And in large part because of this filmmaker, Bruce Brown. Um, I mean, he made lots and lots of surf movies um, before he made in the endless summer. Um, but I say it's barely a documentary because honestly, it's just clips of surfing around the world. And he sort of creates a narrative, um, with the voiceover. Um, but the premise is, um, he's following two surfers as they travel around the world, chasing the season of summer, um, while looking for that perfect wave. And it starts out in Malibu and it goes to Hawaii and Ghana, Nigeria, Australia, Tahiti. Um, so it's, it's really beautiful to look at. Um, I grew up a little bit watching surfing movies, having grown up in Puerto Rico part of the time. So that was a big part of the culture there. It was a big thing we did at my school was they showed surf movies all the time. So there is this sort of subculture of that. And it's, it's a mesmerizing thing to watch. I mean, it's an incredible sport and it's just beautiful and graceful. And, you know, um, so there is something mesmerizing about watching this movie. Um, it, there's entertaining parts about it too, because Bruce Brown, his narration sort of has that, um, you know, you know, the educational films, if you ever saw educational films from that era, it has the same kind of dry, um, narration, but he puts in all these really dumb dad jokes. And so it's, it's sort of unintentionally funny. Um, but then there's also this really sweet naivete to the movie because it captures a, a kind of a more innocent time and, in, in, you know, 66 um, among this culture. Uh, I, I was tickled to see because they show them traveling through Africa, you know, going to the airports and stuff. And and the surfers, these young, you know, blonde, bronzed men uh, are dressed in their black suits and ties because that's how you dressed, you know, to fly in those days. And um, so there's something kind of sweet about that to me. Uh, so it, it's fun. It's it's fun. Very summery. Uh, movie and it was um not expected in fact it almost didn't get distribution and it ended up being a smash hit that um i think it made 20 million dollars and it cost like fifty thousand dollars to make it <laughs> um 
So, uh, so yeah, there was clearly a lot more interest in it than the industry thought there would be at the time. And I think a great double feature for the Endless Summer would be, be uh, Blue Crush, which is a um, 2002 movie that um, I didn't realize was based on an article by Susan Orlean, who uh, wrote Orchid Thief and, and a bunch of books, New Yorker, New Yorker. But anyway, it's um, it stars Kate Bosworth as a competitive surfer who's trying to go pro um, and it co-stars Michelle Rodriguez and it features tons of really beautiful surfing footage from, uh, uh, the famous pipeline surf break in Hawaii on Oahu Island. Um, I think that would be a good double feature. Those two, one, one as a sort of a documentary, the other one, um, fictional. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. And then when, when I saw the endless summer on this list, it made me think, it's like they're still making surf movies today and um right. you know they there was one uh, i believe it's 2004 2006 i can't remember exactly called riding giants which you yes. know that one did really well as well um that was <clears throat> sort of like the the new endless summer uh right. although it wasn't quite the you know didn't have quite the cultural impact but you know if you want to see how surf movies have evolved over the years that's a really yeah. good place to to go and check it out because yeah. as as you can imagine the cinematography and all of that stuff has has grown by leaps and bounds since 1966 well that's the thing i mean the cinematography is really pretty primitive in the endless summer you know i mean it, it looks like he's just standing on the beach you know <laughs> pointing a camera and um so yeah it is not a sophisticated film at all um but it's still really beautiful to look at. And it has this sort of yellowish tinge to the film that sort of gives it this instant nostalgia, you know, old Polaroid look. And, um, and I mean, just, I mean, surfing to me is just an incredible sport. I, I don't know how they make it look so easy, um, but it is really death defying. And um, it's beautiful to look at. And there's really great music in that, too, naturally. There's lots of great, um, you know, surf rock guitar in it that, um, that's fun. And it, there's a really great long extended scene, actually, um, in Ghana, because they, they surf places that have never been surfed. And um, so the, the people who live there are like, my, their minds are blown, you know, watching this happen. And so there's one scene in Ghana where all of these children come on the shore and stand and watch the, the men surf. And then the men end up um, teaching some of the kids how to surf. And then the kids find pieces of board and start to teach themselves. And it's just a really sweet, beautiful scene. Um, so, yeah, that's really nice. And then it's interesting when they get to Australia, they find out that um, of course, summer isn't always the best season to surf. <laughs> um, a lot of times it's winter. And so they get to Australia and it's not the best time to surf and there are no waves. So I thought that was kind of cool that they included that because that's sort of part of the reality of surfing is sometimes the waves just aren't there. Right. Yeah. You're at the mercy of nature. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, well, Suzanne, uh, it's been really great talking with you about movies. I love this. And um, so you can go and check out, you know, most of these films 
are um, you know streaming in various places, or you can rent them from Amazon, iTunes, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, and and uh, Suzanne has a story. She's written a story with all of these and more info on them and where you can find them. Um, and you can get that at AJC.com, as always. Um, so once again, thank you so much, Suzanne. There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had, and we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience, and the stories are easy to find on AJC.com. Many gyms are open, but many of us are still a little wary of working out in an enclosed space with other people. If that describes you, we have some alternatives. And according to a recent survey, about 28% of Georgians are exercising more since the pandemic began. How? By using online resources from virtual trainers and fitness groups to social media accountability groups and exercise apps. There's a wealth of fitness info out there on the web, and freelance writer Nina Hemphill reader investigates what's available and offers suggestions on staying healthy and in shape. Check it out at AJC.com under the Things to Do tab. Georgia-born sisters Rebecca and Megan Lovell, a.k.a. Larkin Poe, were nominated for a Grammy for their last album, Venom and Faith. It was up for Best Contemporary Blues Album, though they lost to Gary Clark Jr. Still, it was a big moment for these two musicians, and they've got a new album out called Self-Made Man. The sisters spoke with the AJC's Melissa Ruggieri about the album and what it's like to put out a new release in these unusual times. Check it out on the Atlanta Music Scene blog at AJC.com. Local arts organizations around the country are struggling to stay afloat, as many of them have lost major revenue streams due to venue closures, performance and exhibition cancellations, and more. The Andrew Mellon Foundation has announced that it will give $10 million to small and mid-sized arts organizations around the country that have been hurt by the COVID-19 pandemic. Bo Emerson got the story, and he has details about who is eligible and how the process will work. Find out more at AJC.com. As more restaurants begin to open, others are continuing with the curbside pickup and takeout model they've been working with in recent months. Heirloom Market Barbecue has seen only a modest drop in business since they were already skilled at takeout. With social distancing not really an option on their small patio space, it's all takeout now. Read about the restaurant's experience and see how their Korean meets Southern food fares in the latest edition of Atlanta Orders In from the AJC's dining team. Check it out at the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. Podcast edited by Bria Felicien. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.